Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Sci-Files. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Fuentes. Today we have special guest Diana Cowern. Diana Cowern is a science communicator and educator. She is the content creator for her YouTube channel, Physics Girl, with PBS Digital Studios, which has over 1 million subscribers. Today we're joined by Diana Cowern. Diana, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, I am a science communicator. I grew up in Hawaii, if you want to start that far back. Um, <laughs> and then I, I went on and studied physics um, in Boston at MIT and sort of had no idea what I wanted to do. A lot of my friends were like, I'm going to go design iPhones at Apple. Like they knew that's their number one priority, their number one goal. And I had no idea, but I did always have a bit of a passion for communicating science, getting other people excited about science. And so with that job careers in the back of my mind, I slowly worked my way toward becoming a YouTuber, which is not at all what I thought I would end up doing as a job, but it's been a really, really fun, interesting and modern job with a lot of ups and downs and changes. So it's been fun. Great. And what does it mean to do science communication in the first place? Um, I think that I think that's really changed over the years. Um, you know, I think Carl Sagan was one of the trailblazers as far as science communication goes, and he had he obviously had a very popular TV show called Cosmos, which I was a big fan of. Um, and he really brought the wonder of science to the general public. He sort of sort of introduced this idea of getting excited about science, getting interested in science from the beauty and in the intriguingness of science rather than, you know, the hard equations and this is this is the application, this is what you use it for. He really showed the beauty of science. So, um, so I think that's one thing that science communicators do is they just get people excited and interested in science. And then from there, you know, they bridge the divide between scientists who tend to do their science in a lab uh, by themselves communicating among their peers and the general public who don't necessarily have uh, the, the words, the, the vocabulary to understand some of these concepts. So science communicators help to tr translate in a way and, um, and teach the general public or or introduce the general public to some interesting ideas in science um, across the the different areas of science in um, you know in physics and chemistry and medical fields um, even in engineering. When did you feel like you became a science communicator? Was it when you were at MIT before or after? Yeah, I did not feel like a science communicator for a while, even while making videos, because I sort of just felt like. I was doing this for fun and I liked it, but I think, I think I really felt like a science communicator when people started, I think, I think when people started inviting me to talk about science communication, just sort of at, you know, random conferences or at universities, like come talk to our students, our science students about science communication and the importance of it. And I was like, so, me, why, <laughs> why do you want me to talk about it? Um, and it was just, I think that, you know, I, I, I had taken a couple classes in science communication. I didn't have a degree in it. I had a degree in science, but I think it's one of those things where, you know, you practice enough and you do it enough and you really can learn the skills of science communication, even without maybe a formal um, education or formal training in science communication. So whenever you're making these videos, 
what provides the inspiration that helps you come up with the different ideas that you do for your YouTube channel? It's honestly a tricky question to answer because it's always so different for every single video. Um, it could be anything from um, a, a little trick that I remembered this kid did in, um, in my class when I was in middle school. I remember, this is an actual video that I made. Um, this, this, uh, one of my friends in sixth grade made a cloud come out of his mouth. And I was like, how, how, he just like sort of clicked his tongue a little bit and made this cloud come out. I was like, how did he do that? Um, and I remembered this 10 years later and looked it up and it was a real thing. And I was like, oh, there's actually science behind this. So that became a video. So remembering something from childhood. Um, sometimes it's, it's ideas that people send me, like they'll send me, you know, I, I noticed this phenomenon when I was drinking my coffee this morning, what is it? Or I'll notice a phenomenon like singing into a tube recently, wanting to find the resonant frequency. I noticed this weird phenomenon about how the frequency pushes back on your vocal cords. And then sometimes it's, it's, you know, things that I had learned in school, like those mind blowing moments when you're going through your classes and you're like, oh my God, I had no idea that black holes could evaporate. Or I had, I had no idea that, um, that there are all these different kinds of stars. I took a, I had a lot of mind blowing moments in, um, in astronomy class. So a lot of, a lot of those videos came from classes that I had taken getting my physics degree. So it's really, I mean, it's, it's anywhere. I think that that really speaks to the fact that physics is everywhere in our lives, that the ideas could come from anywhere and anybody. When you're making your YouTube videos, what do you think are the best practices for making them? Do people like more whenever you're on the camera or when there's demos being shown? You know, that's, that's something that I've gone back and forth on a lot. I think um, I made a video that was just demos. It was like five fun physics experiments. And that was, I think, the only video where I didn't show my face. And my audience got really angry. They were like, this is not what we come to your channel for. The only thing that sets it apart is that you're in it. And I was like, what? I had no, I, no idea that my audience really liked you know, seeing me in the videos because I think a lot of the focus had been on the science. So I think that it, it really is a mix. And I think that, you know, people don't like change. <laughs> so that's one thing. So the, the constant was the fact that I was in every video. And there, I think that there's something to be said for showing a person, showing somebody who's really excited about science and who um, you can connect with and you, like their enthusiasm comes across. Um, so I think in that way, being in the videos, um, helps to connect with my audience. But, but I think in other times, the video format really lends itself to beautiful experiments and interesting experiments and even imagery, as if it's something about uh, galaxies or, um, or space or something like that. Like there's just amazing, beautiful imagery anyways that you can use. So that is always nice to look at when you're watching a video. With the demonstrations, I think that, I think what I really like there is that people can see how things are done. They can see where science would apply in their everyday lives. And then sometimes if it's a demonstration that's like, you can do this at home, DIY, all the materials are found in your kitchen. Then I think people can really connect with seeing the science as something that they could relate to and could reproduce at home with their kids, with their friends. Um, and I think that, that that connects to the audience in a different way than just seeing somebody talk about it. You mentioned earlier that you perform these different types of experiments to showcase in your videos. During your time at MIT, what kind of experiments were you interested in working on or what did you work on during your time? 
Mm, so, so when I was at MIT, um, as an undergraduate, I did this program called the Undergrad Research Opportunity, the Europe, um, where undergrads got to actually do research working with professors or postdocs. And I worked with Jocelyn Monroe in um, one of the particle physics labs. So she was working on a dark matter experiment. And this was specifically trying to, um, it was sort of in collaboration with a dark matter detector. Like the, the idea was this particle detector is looking for particles that could potentially be dark matter because, you know, we've never seen dark matter. We've never actually detected it. We just indirectly know that it's there. And this experiment we were working on was looking at categorizing the number of neutrons just coming from the atmosphere, coming from outer space, and figuring out that the level of neutrons so you can subtract those out and be like, okay, if you detect this number of particles, we can subtract out this many as neutrons and then this many as other particles, but nobody had ever categorized the neutron flux, as we call it. Um, so that's what we were working on, on um, detecting. We're working on that neutron detector. Um, so <laughs> an experiment in the physics department is very, very different than an experiment trying to get people interested in science. <laughs> because the day-to-day -day really is like, oh, our electronics are not working. We have to program this thing. We have to sit up, we have to wait all night to get some runs and get some data and then <laughs> work on that. And, uh, and I, I, I remember thinking, it's really hard to get people interested in your research when what you do is sit in a lab and, and look at a computer. And I really wanted to share, even back then, I really wanted to share my passion for physics with my parents or with my friends. Um, and so doing little experiments in science communication, I think it was a way of bridging that gap between like, no, I love the research I'm doing, but it's really hard to get you excited about it and show you what I'm really doing because it's only this, this one thing and it takes a very long time. Some of our listeners on Impact 89FM might not know what is dark matter. Would you mind defining what is dark matter, please? I would love to be able to define what dark matter is, but we don't actually know what it is. Um, we just know that about, I think it's 85%, I always get the numbers mixed up because they co often combine dark matter and dark energy. Essentially, all of the matter and energy in the universe um, if you break that down into different categories, the, the, the baryonic matter, which is the stuff we know of, only makes up 4% of the matter and energy in the universe. And the rest of it is what we know as dark matter and dark energy, which are essentially just names for dark things that we don't know yet what they are, what makes them up. And we're looking for exactly what dark matter is. And we know it's there because we see it do things like bend light around galaxies. We see it do things like, like make galaxies form into spiral shapes in a way that they wouldn't otherwise given the amount of mass that we can actually see. But that tells us there's matter there we cannot see, which ends, which we call dark matter. It's a very creative name. You can't see it. Hence, it's dark matter. Um, and so, now, so scientists are right now looking for different ways to detect dark matter. They're looking for them as particles. They're looking for them as uh, primordial black holes, potentially. Like all, all these different things that they could potentially be. They're just looking for ways of directly detecting them. But we don't know. We don't know what it is yet. So we, we don't exactly know what dark matter is. <laughs> That's really awesome. And then has there been any other types of research that you've been involved with since you graduated from MIT? 
Yeah, so so right after I graduated, I actually um, took a, a bit of time. I thought that I was going to go to grad school in physics. And so I, I looked around for what's called a post-baccalaureate research position, which is just like means after you get your bachelor's degree, someone takes you on to do some research. And I did that at Harvard with Anna Freebull. Um, and she was studying low metallicity stars. Um, she basically, she was looking for the oldest stars in the universe. Um, and she was doing that by looking for stars that have low amounts of heavy metals. Because the idea is that, you know, as time goes on, the universe goes on, things like supernovas happen and they explode and they create these really heavy metals and stars start to fuse heavy metals. So the later stars that form from these exploded supernovas and and from uh from other bits of stars that created heavier metals will have those those later generations of stars will have heavier metals but the earlier generations will only have hydrogen and helium and the stuff that was around in the very very early universe so these super old stars you know they could even be around close to us they they're not necessarily super far away they might just be like very slow burning stars um, that are obviously billions of years old. Um, we're just looking for those stars and to categorize them, see how many they are, there are and so forth, which was, it was really fun. But I, I moved on to software engineering and then eventually science communication from that. So with all of this research experience that you've gained throughout the years, what helped you transition into the field of science communication in the first place? What helps you get into making YouTube videos? That's a tough question because I, I feel like it was not, I didn't feel like I had the skills to be a science communicator. And I, I think over time, um, I, I, I really think that just practicing was the best way to get better at science communication. Like anything, it's one of those skills where you, you're not necessarily just naturally good at communicating. And I thought, I thought you were. I thought that you either were a good communicator or a good talker, you could speak clearly and speak well, or you couldn't. Uh, but like anything, it just takes a lot of practice. And I think over the course of creating close to 150 videos now or something like that, I've definitely gotten better and I'm, I'm constantly learning new techniques and ways of storytelling. And also also just learning things like, like a lot of science communicators have talked about the things that they're communicating over and over. So they've gotten to practice. They're not just naturally like, they can't pick any topic and just immediately talk about it necessarily and, and be really clear and concise. There's, a, there's often a lot of practice that goes into it. And it's good to know that. It you know, sort of gives you a little more confidence to be like, well, I could practice. I can do that. Since you're reaching close to 150 videos, out of all of them, which one have you found was the most fun to work on uh, with the rest of your crew? Oh, they've all been so different because some of them are like little experiments I do in my in my kitchen or my studio, and some of them are getting to go visit CERN, which we're working on right now. But I think I think of the recent videos, my favorite one has been um, going to LIGO, where they first discovered gravitational waves. We got to go to the, the lab, we got to talk to you know, so the scientists working on the initial observation of gravitational waves, and this incredible facility. We got to talk to people who were really, really knowledgeable about gravitational waves and about the facility and all the instrumentation, but also who had such a passion for it, which, which was so fun to see. I think that often I'm by myself in my studio getting excited about science. And it's really, really nice to be around other people who are so excited. 
we created two videos out of that one, which was just sort of telling the story of what, what excited us most or excited me most and interested me most about gravitational waves. And another was just a long form interview asking the head of that, of, of LIGO Hanford um, observatory, just tons of questions about whatever, about what is the speed of gravity? What have we learned from gravitational waves? And just getting to sit with him for half an hour and ask him all of my questions. And I loved that because I think that that's one of the most fun parts of this job is getting to be curious and getting to continue learning. So that one was a lot of, a lot of fun to work on. Well, I'm glad you were able to have that opportunity to visit an international collaborating uh, facility such as LIGO like that. And it's going to be really great that you're going to be able to come now this upcoming week to the facility for our isotope beams. Uh, like I had mentioned in a previous conversation, the facility for our isotope beams, also known as EFRIG, it's going to be the world's most powerful nuclear accelerator ever built and used in human history. That is that is so exciting. I feel like I feel like that's that's one of the the luckiest things about my job is getting to go to these incredible places, meet these amazing scientists, and and get excited with them about what they're doing. I the 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 great thing about a lot of these observatories like LIGO and and CERN is that they're often open to the general public. So so not just YouTubers can go. A lot of people can go if they happen to be in the area. I mean, you do have to be in Hanford, Washington, which is in the middle of nowhere, or in Switzerland, also kind of far for a lot of people. But, um, but a, lot of, a lot of laboratories are open to the general public, which is great. Yeah, just like the uh, effort over here, right before it ever actually goes online, we have the National Superconducting Cyclotron Laboratory here set up that is also open to the public and always engages with the local community in different events, whether it's through high school, summer camps, to open houses. It all depends, but it, I that agree. That is fantastic. Yeah, that's wonderful to hear. That is, that is great. I think it's really important. I think it's really important for people to get in there and to see the science and meet the scientists. That's really, really cool. Yeah, like you both are saying, it's really great for the public to engage with science, which is why we're having that large event that you're going to be speaking at. So on October 19th, the public can come to the facility for isotope beams and see a large science art exhibit outside of the auditorium. So people from the community of MSU and from the Lansing East Lansing community came together to create these art pieces. So there were scientists and artists working together to create these wonderful depictions of science through art. And then we're going to have your show at the Wharton Center uh, talking about science and art, and we'll have science demos as well. I was wondering, what really got you into science art? Like, do you have a specific thing that really made you motivated towards science art and towards making YouTube videos? You know, I always, um, I could never decide what I wanted to do when I was younger because I loved sort of everything. <laughs> I loved science and math, but I also really loved music. And I, I, I did like some, a lot of photography classes. Um, I did a lot of painting. So I think, I think that I always had an interest in both. And I really think that um, especially music and science go hand in hand. Um, and I, I think that one thing that drew me to video so strongly was the ability to show really interesting looking and really beautiful parts of science. I, I love making videos on fluid dynamics specifically because some of the phenomena you get are just so intricate and so beautiful and, and just mind blowing in a visual way. So I think that, um, I think just that interest from, from when I was a kid in both science and art drew me to connecting them together to create science media. 
I think I think that's probably why. Well, thank you so much, Diana, for joining us today for this interview. It really means a lot to us, and we're really excited to get getting to see you again this next Saturday for the Science Art Exhibition. For any of our listeners uh, tuning in, you can pick up tickets at, for the Science Art Show uh, hosting Diana at the Warden Center, or you can call in and reserve ahead of time. And if you have any questions, uh, please uh, let either Chelsea or I know. Yeah, tickets are free, and you can also pick up a few tickets at the Impact 89 FM station. So if you want, you can call into Impact and maybe pick up some tickets over there. Thanks, Diana. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. I'm really, I'm really excited for the event, and I hope to see everyone there. Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on Sci-Files.